0: This is the podcast for the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, a conversation from our Technology and Consciousness series about the intersection of artificial intelligence and art Jerry Kaplan, a computer scientist and AI expert, talks with Cal Speltik, an artist who works with robotics, about how humans might leverage this emerging technology creatively. The conversation was recorded on April 7, 2016, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.
1: I'm Cal.
2: I'm Jerry. This will be the Cal and Jerry Show. Yes. So, hey, Hal, how are you? Cal, how are
1: you? I'm well, Jerry. What's new? i bicycled over here from the Bayview where my art studio is. Oh, cool. It's working today. I hear you're a fabulous artist. I'm, I'm always learning trying. <laughs> I think the great thing about art is you never know it all. So it's an endless journey. Sure well. The kingdom of God is within you. It sure think. is. They, <laughs> they and all of, all of you as well. <laughs> so, on <laughs> that note. <laughs> um, we
2: have the artist and the scientist. Yeah. And boy, we, we, as you can see, we're very awkward. We don't know how to talk. So, you can't hear. Can hear. You can't hear. Okay. All right, we're going to have to step it up here. Let's turn this up. That's right. <laughs>
1: Anybody here from New Jersey? Well, I'm going to out kick it off, um, Jerry, and ask you a question or two. How's that? Answer. Sure. And so I uh, the technology I work with is on a, in an artistic vein, but I use robotics and sensor-based robotics for my work, and you're studying AI, artificial intelligence and often that's cloaked or wrapped in a kind of dark thing, um, maybe a big brother element, and what's tell us your views on that.
2: Well, <clears throat> what you said is, is true in that the, the government is, uh, at least until recently, was the primary funder of uh, research and in artificial intelligence, and the primary branch of the government was the Defense Department, and it still is to some degree from the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. I was surprised when I got my PhD in 1979 to discover that I had been supported by by the government, uh, by the Defense Department, I didn't even know it at the time. And uh, the the reason that the government is interested in technology goes back to the Sputnik era. Who's the oldest person here? Anybody remember Sputnik? (laughs) How many people have no idea what Sputnik is? Two. Okay, not okay. He's coming to get me. He's from DARPA. <laughs> okay, okay. We'll 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 bring it in real tight here. Bring it down. Bring it down. Uh, and uh, what was I going to say? Something. Oh, uh, so the problem with Sputnik was the, the Russians were getting the better of us. You know, they were the first guys to get a. Uh, uh, launch a satellite. Uh, launch a satellite, exactly. Okay. So the, uh, uh, the government at the time, I think it might have been Kennedy? No, it was before Kennedy. Um, they were concerned that we were getting behind technologically. And so they decided to make a big push uh, for military purposes into technology. And I'm a product of that. I was brought up as a Sputnik kid, and uh, I have been ever since. You know, I'm going back next week, next Monday, I'll be in Washington to talk to a bunch of government
1: people. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of the Defense Department. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a big enemy of the Defense Department. <laughs> <laughs> the line is drawn. Well, uh, um, much of the breakthroughs in technology is fostered or started by groups like DARPA and the, and the military, um, for better or worse, and then, Uh, I've often thought, how could I take some of that, um, some of those innovations and apply it in a poetic or artistic or magic way, instead of for surveillance or violence?
2: Well, I think one of the wonderful things that I've learned from your work is to understand that while in the world that I live in, at Stanford AI Lab and the people in artificial, how many people here are, are engineers? It's just, okay, that's pretty what? good. And how many of you are working uh, in or around or with art, uh, something related to artificial intelligence? There we go. Okay, guys. Plenty. Let's just split into two. <coughs> everybody in AI on this side, everybody in the arts on that side. The, uh, the bride and the groom. Uh, but what I learned uh, from, from Cal is that we think of technology as something which... Uh, Helps us to automate things, to perform work, to do jobs, to take over tasks. But that's only one way in which technology can enhance our lives. Technology can also enhance us by giving us new ways to express our human spirit. And this I've learned from talking to Cal. And so it's kind of expanded my view just in the past couple of hours. Just minutes. Minutes. Mere minutes. To begin to think about that as a way of enhancing, using AI and using technology to enhance uh, the human experience. So, I don't know, you wanna talk a little bit about some of the wonderful stuff you're doing.
1: Well, I often think, um, what are the applications and the role of technology in our life, and then as an artist or a radical or an activist, how can I subvert that and spin it positive or spin it ridiculous? And how does that become poetry? Um, and I'm also an ardent gardener. And I like to, you know, everybody's like, oh, what do you grow? I grow tomatoes and some raspberries and celery and some herbs, but then I grow a ton of flowers. And so, uh, how can you just let the military have fun with AI or robotics or a jet engine or a flamethrower? Why can't that be art? Why can't that be the flowers in the garden? And, uh, I mean, there's other, a lot of other decisions or concepts that go into those decisions I make, um, and part of it is a personal technical challenge to try and new things that I haven't experimented with yet or that I haven't, I'm not seeing used or applied in the ways I would like to. So, for instance, I uh, had an exhibit of praying robots this past year. I had been working on for years and made some custom sensors with hackers and some electrical engineers who were willing to experiment with me on this kind of ridiculous proposal that we could harvest uh, data from humans, the audiences, audiences that visit the art exhibit, and the robots would sense that and pray for or with them. I think the bigger question is, can or does technology, can it do spiritual work?
2: Well, I think, Cal, it's an interesting question. Do do robots have the power of prayer? Can they pray for your immortal
1: soul? Uh, Yes, and I say that because before I took this project on, I have this wonderful aunt, my Aunt Margaret, and she's been a radical, progressive Catholic her whole life and was a nun for decades. And she follows my shows and my art. And I knew, like, whoa, I'm going into her territory. I need to talk to her about it. So the first thing I asked her was, can technology do spiritual work? And she said, of course it can, Cal. It's like, whew, all right, I'm gonna do this show.
2: <clears throat> okay. Well, I guess the, the question in that is, Are the robots spiritual themselves, or are they merely vessels by which we extend our own spirituality and our own ideas? And I think much of your work, at least I would see this being somewhat in the latter category.
1: Yeah, that's that's a question I don't know the answer to. I think it's one reason I did that project, is could I build robots that prayed? Maybe they're just, you know, it's like transcendental meditation. You get enough robots praying, we can collectively lift the planet
2: can we? If you have enough robots with enough mechanical the strength, power, a hydraulic
1: lift? Oh,
2: yeah.
1: exactly. um, you know, and a, a big challenge was building sensors that responded uniquely to each individual and to the particular environment oh. that I installed the robots in. Mm-hmm. And so they're essentially harvesting data from a live audience, and then the robot is responding according to each individual person's data that that the sensors can, can harvest. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, it seems to me that technology in general, is, well, put it this way. People, life is a struggle to control your environment and to express yourself and uh, to uh, make things happen with more than just your own, your own hands. And technology clearly is an extension of yourself in this regard as a way for us to be able to exercise a higher degree of control over the world. So in in your work, when you amplify the uh, human, uh, you you refer them to sensors, but the ways in which people are moving, or acting, or making sounds, or uh, having their brainwaves measured, uh, it seems to me that you're really engaged in uh, what here I will call God's work. Which is uh, finding better ways for us to be able to have an impact, to be able to create Uh, good in the world by leveraging what's good in us. Mm -hmm. And so, when I read about much of your work, I haven't actually controlled a robot Mm -hmm. in that way myself, but uh, it it seemed to me that it would provide a very positive emotional experience for people in the same way that um, uh, like when you drive a car, people really enjoy driving because they have control over a machine and can use it to uh, they're in control of their destiny. To, uh, yeah, to implement their will. Yes, yeah,
1: yeah, You know, I think um, all the arts do that. Every film, dance, theater, painting, and it, and it does, it gives people a voice. And it, it is sort of a workaround of capitalism, or this consumer society we have, where you can make ridiculous things that are absolutely applicationless in life. They're not gonna wash your window. They're not gonna cook your food. Or, I don't know, I built flaming walking robots that have barbecues on them, and they have 20-foot flamethrowers on them. And they can sort of cook the bratwurst, but, I mean, what does it mean to do something like that? And how far can you push the envelope? And part of why I got into art and then applying it to technology was to work in areas that I didn't understand, or that I didn't, and I I would go to art shows and and get bored really quick often, and then I'd be like, well, what do I wanna see? Or what's important at this part of my life? I'm 55, I don't have that much time. It can take years to make an exhibit of robots, and so you have to pick and choose what you think's important for this part of your life, and what's happening to the planet.
2: Can you believe he's 55? I don't buy that. Anymore. I can't believe it. I'm 90. <laughs> AI. <laughs> uh, I've had a number of parts replaced. It's, uh, yeah. been, uh, been, been really. Who's cool. got a hip? Well, look, I, I think that the kind of work you're doing is really wonderful for society, because, you know, it's the quintessential expression of the human spirit. And the ways in which we think about technology should not just be that they do things for us, but that they also help us to express ourselves. So that's a benefit for us. Just as it's a benefit if a robot does my laundry, I don't have to do my laundry. But if I can use a robot to make other people happy, or to project my inner spirit in some meaningful way, that's also going to make me happy and make other people happy. So that's just a different view of technology than we typically have uh, here in the uh, Silicon Valley.
1: I often wonder, would the home care robot, when I'm elderly and I'm sitting at home and I could build my own home care robot, would that be heaven or would that be hell?
2: Well, it's funny. Uh, My mother is 91. She's only a year older than I am. (laughs) And uh, I think she'd be perfectly happy to have a care robot as long as it listened to her. That would be the key. Yeah, yeah. So if you and, believe that robots can pray, I don't see why you wouldn't take the position that robots are excellent in elder care because they can also be sympathetic,
1: have an empathy, an empathetic, empathetic voice. That, right. Or, or,
2: yeah. Now, just for the record, hero. I don't buy any of that. But I, I respect the fact yeah. here in the kingdom of God that's within you to uh, that other people have, have a different view of that, of what they are doing.
1: I often, you know, I'm not, I'm not even positive robots can pray, but uh, I'm interested in the question and then hurling immense amount of time and money at that question. Yeah.
2: Well, one could just as well ask whether people can pray. You know, they they, sure. they, they go, engaging in some activity. Uh, it's, it's really to my disappointment that I don't have any subjective feeling about that, but I, yet I see that many people do, and they obviously do. When I was younger, I used to wonder why do they do that? But I have come to accept in my dotage that uh, people do it because it, they, they're feeling something that I, I personally uh, do not feel. Now this is helping a lot. I got to say, being in the church. But
1: uh... no, I'm often if you like, what is being spiritually moved, and I often that nature does that for me, or uh, um, my garden does that for me, or um, planning, I do guerrilla gardening in San Francisco, and planting a tree, and then it's like, whoa, it's at twenty feet. My God, it's at thirty feet. There's birds living in it. And I'll have like that's like a spiritual moment for me, where you know, a decade, two decades into a redwood I plant, which the city hates, um, but I'm all for more redwoods. So that's uh, one of one of the plants I plant. And
2: well, I'm, I'm familiar with the feeling you're talking about because I have four kids, and as they grow, I mean, to me, that's the the essence of humanity is your ability to you know, recreate more humans, <laughs> sure, yeah. and uh, try to get them on the right path, which is very hard, I want you to know. Yeah. But uh, occasionally, occasionally they take a step back on the path, and I'm very pleased when that happens.
1: Yeah. Well, as, we're, as I, we were talking earlier, probably the most important thing or decision in your life is what to do with your life, and then how to feel good about that for the rest of your life. Or does that change as you change throughout your life, what you do and how you use your energy and time and your power on this planet? uh, Having said that, I want to shift to the dark side again a little bit and then find light to that. So there's a couple, few things that are happening that we're seeing in the news or being reported, and one was this ridiculous um, racist chat bot that Microsoft and Twitter dreamed up. Um, um, obviously, um, one thing that's going to happen with robotics is there will be sex partners that will be robots, and I'm also uh, maybe it's maybe this is the light. Um, the computer programs that are beating chess masters, and then just recently built beat the, uh, the Al- AlphaGo mm-hmm. game. Is that right? Which is like a thousand times harder than chess. Yes, well, hundred thousand times harder than chess. Well, not
2: necessarily for people, but it is for machines. Well, I can talk about yeah. all of these subjects. That Please. That like. See the, the fundamental issue. I think that when I think about these things is. If you think about them as having a soul, or that, there's a, uh, that it's you and them, and you're having some kind of interaction, uh, we have a tendency to anthropomorphize our technology and our machines. And my point of view is that's really just nonsense. It's some kind of instinct we have which can be hijacked and used against us. So let me go down that list that you said and give you some of my impressions. You said it's a racist chatbot. Well, that's not true. Surely you guys understand. All it does is reflect things that have been read. It doesn't understand anything. It's merely taking patterns of words and uh, reprocessing them in certain ways and spitting them back out. Yet we have this in the press and in the perception that people have that um, that the, the machine is being bad, that it's intending to do this, that it knows what it's doing. But none of that's true. It's just playing back and reflecting. It's like a mirror, reflecting back whatever
1: has been fed in. The second thing you talk well, about... sorry. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, so, we live in a racist society, right? And it's mirroring that. Okay. And uh, there is racism in our society. Let's there, be a little bit more. Okay.
2: Give him a, a chance. Come on. Sure. We're in the kingdom of God. <laughs> Excuse me. How many you a racist?
1: Would you raise your hand? <laughs> and so... Uh, um, what about technology that um, shows that side of humanity? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, in a sense, I'm a racist
2: because I'm a humanist. And I don't believe that robots have any rights or have any place. There's nobody home. So I think today, in fact, one of my concerns is that to be a humanist today, that's a good thing. But hundred years from now, if uh, the general direction of artificial intelligence continues where it's going, that may be considered a very racist thing to be a humanist, that you don't believe that your robot should have rights. Or that of course it will,
1: right? That will well, be robot, there will be robot rights.
2: Well, okay.
1: For better or worse, I, I think
2: there will. You heard it here first in the kingdom of God. <laughs> that robots are gonna, I mean, we're we gonna have the, you know, I'm sorry you guys can't come in because the robots get the front rows here. Yeah.
1: What was that story? some reason we couldn't... So what about sex machines then? When someone has a partner that is a robot. Well... And then, then even weirder, it's an underage partner that's half, I don't know, half cat. Well, the question is...
2: I'm sorry, it's, it's the, the visual on that is really getting to me. What does it mean to have an underage robot? That's not what it's about. It's building something that looks like something that it's not. And so your your reaction, what you're doing is you're coaxing out of people, uh, the worst in them, uh, negative uh, impulses. And you're getting them to do things that, in some sense, if they understood or believed, what was really going on, they wouldn't want to do. It's one thing when they engage in uh, sexual behavior with a machine, Uh, but it's it's another when you buy something because there's this really cute robot that's begging you to do it and saying, you know, if you don't do this, they're gonna shut me down. I mean, that's the kind of world we might live in. And my point is if it's about fooling people and about substituting machinery for human interaction, that that's fundamentally a bad thing. That's an abuse and a misuse of technology. And I think it's true both for artists and for technologists that we can think about this process very differently. We can think about the ways in which we can use the technology to enhance the human spirit, the good parts, the things that we we want to express, and not to cater to our our darker side, said Darth Vader.
1: So where I was leading, I guess, with those baiting questions Uh is how the media is manipulating this dialogue about technology and um, other voices or approaches to using AI or robotics that aren't, say, the DARPA dog. And you see these kind of shocking videos like, holy smokes. An, an 800 pound robotic autonomous dog. It's not truly autonomous, it's run by remote control. Yeah. But it's a matter of time before um, they're running it, you know, they're airdropping it in, and uh, um, running it from Nevada in a bunker. Well,
2: this is a, a great example of what I, the point I, I was just trying to make. When the Boston Dynamics, which is probably what you're referring to, yes. Create something that looks like an animal, and it's got four legs and it trots along. The purpose of it, its goal, is to carry things around. That's it. Now, they happen to be thinking primarily of military applications for the time being,
1: but that's- But hey, they're gonna put a flamethrower on it too. That's what you did. (laughs) what I would do. Well, that's what DARPA asked me to do, yeah, right? Yeah. They offered me a million bucks, to took to build flame them autonomous robots with flamethrowers on them. You're cute. You. And that's the only real money, real money, I've been offered is three, four times the military has approached me. With that? Um, oh, we got to talk about this. And, and so I, I shame them. I'm like, for shame on you for doing this. And uh, how can you do this to the planet? I would never go to the dark side and use what I've learned through you, or through this kind of really global imperialism. Well, what you're, you're objecting to, of course, is the
2: use of the technology to hurt people. But if the purpose of that technology was to be able to cook a hot dog at 30 feet, you think, this is great. Uh, you know, my, my point was this like the big dog videos, they're really striking precisely because we anthropomorphize. Precisely because we look at it and go, oh, my God, that's like a dog. They're building something that's dog-like. And the man kicked it. You probably saw that. Sure. And the thing stumbles. And kick a dog? That's really mean. You shouldn't kick a robot. Well, of course you can kick a robot. You can kick your car. You can kick your dishwasher. You know, you don't want to break it. But my point is if it didn't look like a dog and it did just what it was designed to do, which is some way of moving freight from point A to point B, we wouldn't have these emotional reactions to it. So it's very important that we begin to understand better that these things, just because they look like people, they're no different than dishwashers or microwaves or or whatever it might be. And that false anthropomorphism, that gratuitous anthropomorphism, is, I think, uh, really bad. You mentioned the press. Let me get on the press's case. The guy who was almost sitting here uh, was a fellow from the New York Times. He shall remain nameless, uh, but a good friend of mine. He couldn't make it, so. So you got me instead, I'm sorry to say. And I, I he writes articles about uh, like the, the Go, uh, AlphaGo, that's the computer program that just beat one of the world's champions, Lee Sedol, in Korea uh, at the game of Go, which was considered to be very hard. Now if you read the articles about it, and particularly even the reaction of Lee Sedol, he was saying like, oh, I'm so ashamed, it made such a bold move, and, and you know, it became aggressive toward the end of the game. Well, let me tell you guys something. That's a complete misunderstanding of what was going on. And it was reflected in a lot of the press coverage. (gasps) Oh my god, now a machine can play Go. It's an application of machine intelligence, which itself is an anthropomorphism. What What was really going on is these are systems that can analyze extremely large amounts of data and extract meaningful patterns out of them, and then apply those patterns. That's it. The machine had no intention. It didn't know it was playing a game. It just kept spitting out what it's designed to do. And so when we anthropomorphize these things, I think we do society a disservice. Now what you're doing is a little different. We use them to express humanity. I think that's perfectly good. But there's no them there. I got a news flash for the audience. If you've been to the movies, there's no such thing as a male robot or a female robot. That's strictly a fiction. We can make them look like that, but there are no such thing. And so when you talk about these sex toys on steroids, which you were kind of referring to, I think it's bad to the extent that it hijacks our own instincts away from the things which we would normally regard as productive and valuable to
1: do. Wow, well said. (laughs) You know, working in the field, I can't help but watch how the media disparages so much technology without a second voice, uh, or uh, you know, hearing that, that polar opposite side, and how, of course, they're sensationalizing things, and they're selling a product. Um, gosh, where to enter into all that? You know, a lot of it is the, the dog is a dog because they realized really quick in robotics that four legs is much easier than two legs for a walking machine, and I, built a couple, two or three walking machines on two legs and quick realized, whoa, that is, you, know, you need to, we're pretty much at the cockroach level of robotics. And art and technology world and robotics world thought they could leap ahead to uh, human scale bipeds and had to backtrack real quick to some of the most basic motor skills. And so that is the reason that, that particular robot is four legged, and then they get to call it a dog.
2: Yeah, well, it's, easy. it's where I have a problem is them calling it a big dog yeah. <clears throat> and then making it look like a dog. That's playing to the cheap seats. That's uh, supporting this uh, cultural mythology that we have about the nature of artificial intelligence. You know, it's perfectly fine for us to take inspiration from. Uh, biological creatures in designing the machines that we have. That makes perfect sense. I mean, they work, obviously. The cockroach works. Yeah, the cockroaches have been around for uh, much longer than we have. I forget the exact figures.
1: And much longer than we will be. That's right.
2: They will definitely be around much longer. Um, But the point being that that we don't really want those... uh, uh, You don't want to copy all of the aspects of those. We're not making... We're not trying to make a mechanical dog. That's not, not the way this thing works. you are trying to build a machine to solve a particular kind of a problem. You know, if we were trying, if, if we thought of airplanes as mechanical birds, you know, we, oh my God, how are we gonna get them to nest? And you know, how are we gonna get them to regurgitate their food so that the little airplanes will have enough jet fuel to run on?
1: Why don't they you paint know? airplanes like the colors of parrots?
2: for instance. They do, right? They, they have green and red and yellow. Well, that, I mean, that's fun, but nobody's fooled. They don't go, oh my god, that's really a bird. <laughs> That—that's Take the,
1: me to your big nest. Yeah,
2: that's my, that's my beef, that's my beef. Machines are our tools. They're not an emerging species. And they're not an, an emerging form of life. There's just no evidence whatsoever that I see that makes that true.
1: So one thing I've been interested in is Can I build robots that convey my audience's emotions or parts of their personality um, or their individuality and not program it, have it live harvesting data from the public? And uh, um, got written up in Yahoo, which is really great press. I was so excited when Yahoo wanted to interview me because the responses are the best part. (laughs) Just <laughs> those are bots
2: writing those responses.
1: I'll take it. It's so entertaining and, and sort of scary how people frame things or how um, maybe closed off their poetic side is. You want to ask me some questions? Um, how do
2: you put a flamethrower on a robot safely?
1: You can't. Nothing's safe. There's nothing safe about a flamethrower. I mean, that that was part of it, and a large body of my earlier work was about danger and fear and play and what was the audience willing to subject themselves to. Mm -hmm. Um, For instance, I was watching a PBS program where they got in the tank, the cage, and it went underwater, and they're holding hunks of meat, and the sharks are attacking the cage. I thought, whoa, I want to build that but have a robot attacking the cage. So do you see as one of your goals in... <laughs> a flaming robot attacking the cage. Underwater. So I did, and... Um,
2: so you're trying to evoke an emotional response in your audience. Well, I Underwater. was curious
1: if, so I do have an exhibit, and then I was curious if anyone would be willing to subject themselves to that, first of all. So then as sort of an experiment, like how far, Can I push this? And what are people willing to subject themselves to? And even why? Do you ever see Uh, reality TV? um, (laughs) That, yes, a little bit. (laughs) And so that was sort of a thing I did in the 90s quite a bit and brought the first robotics to a festival called Burning Man and introduced them to flamethrowers, the festival to flamethrowers. And that was exciting at the beginning to have 3,000, then 15,000, then 30,000 willing subjects. So it's sort of a a high-tech
2: new age fear factor for those of you who've seen the show. Uh, Well, so, I mean, but you're not just trying to scare your audience, right?
1: Well, no, no. uh, Of course not. I think in the end, it's can you enlighten them? And can they view the world different? And do they view technology different? What is technology's role in our lives? And... Yeah, can you have a mystical experience? I've had mystical experiences standing in front of a painting or watching an epic sunset, Um, and so can we do that with technology yet?
2: People get worried when they say, oh, we're gonna have robotic lawyers or robotic doctors. I think that this is a misconception. Artificial intelligence in particular, and technology in general, is really about automation. And when we say it's about automation, what we mean is being able to perform tasks that previously required humans to do do those tasks. You know, 200 years ago, over 90% of the U.S. population worked in agriculture. And today, less than 2% do. And that's what gives us the freedom to do the things that we do today and to be here on a uh, weeknight. You know, otherwise, everybody here would be dead asleep waiting for the sun to come back up so they could keep... making food. So when we talk about things like what is uh, AI going to mean for a doctor or for a lawyer, the real answer is the vast majority of the work that what we think of as experts do is really routine and in principle automatable. And what it will do is take over a lot of that routine work in the same way that accountants used to fill out your taxes by doing the calculations and today they put it into a computer. It just allows them to do more. So in that sense, it frees us up to enjoy our human spirit, to be able to enjoy the work of people like Cal, uh, and uh, it's, it's not a threat to us, it's an advantage to us. The problem we have are policy problems.
1: We well, our, so if the robots come and replace all of your jobs, as far as policy goes, you all should be retrained at better jobs, in my opinion, before the robots come in. That would, be my, that would be the policy I would pass. Well, you're absolutely right. Even looking at it from a capitalistic perspective, it's a waste of human capital. And well, in that case, that. then let's just throw out capitalism, let's give everyone a minimum wage and, and forget this whole consumerism. If that, there, so there's the, the best application of technology, in my eyes, is if this, stu, if these, if this hardware is gonna do all this work, then forget this drone labor, and people who are essentially robots going to work they don't like, that fulfills nothing in their life and means nothing to them. They're doing it so they can have two weeks off and go on a cruise ship. I mean, <laughs> that is, that would be hell to me. And, and uh, as far as policy, please, when you go to DC, I'm I'm not sure how you'd even begin that conversation with people who can't fathom a world without consumerism or capitalism. Well, the, the role of the technologists, and it looked like
2: about half the audience, is to create additional wealth. That's really what it's about. Automation is the substitution of capital for labor. The problem is that Karl Marx was right when he said that that's a losing proposition for the people who are performing the labor. So oh wait, there are two things in what you're saying, and I agree really with both of them. The first is we need to figure out better policy ways to invest in uh, retraining people so they can continue to be productive. But the reason that people work isn't just to make a buck so they can give it to Disney. I'm, or I'm making a point, I know. You know, a lot of people enjoy their work. I think you do. I know I do, and neither of us get paid <laughs> much. Um, <laughs> But the <laughs> but uh, you know the, the point is we want to free people up to be able to use that wealth in productive ways and ways that improve their lives and not all of those ways may be economically measurable they may be quality of life issues it it, it enhances my life when there are flowers in the gardens that you plant uh, but that doesn't show up on any government measure that I'm aware of and. I think we need to begin to think about, economists are thinking about, how do you really incorporate those kinds of advantages into the measures that drive the policies that our government makes?
1: Yeah. And I think you know what we're talking about is the role of technology, and then as artists, you get to subvert it, and play with it, and hack it. And to me, if I was 20, 30 years younger, I'd probably be a hacker. And these data dumps, and and this leaking that's going on are probably some of the most subversive, radical things that are happening and just so exciting me. Every time I hear about a new data dump, I'm like, yes, peel back the layers of the onion and let's see what the corporatocracy is doing to us. And, and the extraction of wealth that ripples out to everyone. It's messing up the environment, it's ruining our education, and, and the quality of our lives is collapsing. I mean, the, the, the income hasn't increased for the average American since the mid-70s. Of course, they're gonna start trying anything. They'll try any fascist TV dumbo clown who comes down the pike and be like, well, he's not a politician. Why not him? Our lives has been screwed for 50 years. I don't know what that has to do with robotics.
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, for what it's worth, I I teach the course on ethics of AI at Stanford. So, I mean, here I'm kind of joking around about this, but it's a very serious issue. And uh, there's a lot to be said on this. Uh, My view at Stanford is that within the next 10 to 15 years, we should have a course sequence on computational ethics. By which I mean, how do you take ethical principles and apply them within a uh, computational framework? But the kinds of things that are gonna happen, it's not just ethical issues in in the normal sense of the word, it's social issues. Is it okay for somebody else's robot to stand in line in front of you? Is that acceptable? If somebody sends their robot down to go fetch a Starbucks for you, and is it okay for it to knock people off the sidewalk on its way? Of course we're not going to accept that. And in fact, I believe that the greatest impediment to the uh, acceptance of the autonomous vehicles, which are really fantastic technology, is precisely going to be that they may not abide by the normal social conventions that, that people do. And we're not teaching the engineers what those are, how to study them, and what to do about it. You know, we need civilized robots for a human world. And right now,
1: the technologists really are not looking at it from that perspective. Wow, that's well said. I mean, there's ethics in every part of my life and every product I buy and every step of my life. I hope I'm considering the ripple effect it has. And I had nothing separated in my life or my journey. I think that's why I became an artist and not, I didn't go into industry or just strictly entertainment. Hey, I want to say that I do get support though and I get shows and it's not all a giant mountain I'm climbing and I was just awarded a San Francisco Arts Commission grant to build um, I'm working with some hacker friends, and we're using um brainwave harvesting, and we've been able to separate the right side and left side of the brain's waves. And so I'm building two robots, one for the right side of your brain, and one that represents the left side of your brain's thinking. And we're going to do exhibits here in the city with those robots and have a live audience running the robots and seeing if, we, if what we can learn about that and have fun and hook up lasers and have a fog machine. <laughs> you know, Part of the journey is enjoying it and having fun, I think. And, uh, um, and so there is support for really, some when I was writing the grant, I thought, well, what do I really wanna do? And why am I even writing this grant? And they're never going to give it to me, so I'm just going to do my best idea. I just dare them to turn it down. So here's the Arts Commission.
2: You heard it here first. It's an electronic lobotomy. Did I get that right? Trying to separate the two.
1: Yeah, we're going to separate the right side and the left side of the brain.
2: Well, it'll be very interesting to see what they do. They, They probably can't even talk to each other.
1: Well, that's, that's the question. Does one side of the brain talk to the other? And a lot of people don't even believe that they're that separated. Yeah. What do you think? I don't
2: know, but I'll come and try it. We'll
1: I would time. love to have you try it. So my hacker friends, <laughs> well, I actually would be very intrigued. When I was, we were first experimenting it with, with this, uh, my friends, the Hacker Space Noise Bridge on Mission Street, the hacker guys couldn't do it. They couldn't run the two, I just had a very crude system set up, but they couldn't separate out their brain signals. And, and we are like, ah, maybe this doesn't work, this is crazy, we put a zillion hours into this. And then I thought, well, I'm gonna try it because I have a practice of meditation. And I'm a very amateur person in that field, I feel like, but I'll just try it. And so I meditated, and it was just quiet for literally just like a minute. And all of a sudden, they're like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I was running each of the robots separately and could very, for me, it it ended up being quite easy to run one and then the other.
2: That is really cool. That is super cool.
1: And I'm not even that good of a a, a meditator or yogi or practitioner of that field, so I'm very excited to experiment further with it. Can you get one of them to, like, Dig ditches or something? No, there will be no, no practical labor um, application.
2: <laughs> and proud of it. The question was for me is, what areas of artificial intelligence uh, do I think will be interesting in the future? I think the most relevant for this group is an observation that I would make, which I think Cal was reflecting in some ways. There's a subfield called affective computing. And what that is about is trying to... Uh, determine or assess a person's state of mind and their emotional tenor through various means, uh, that, the kind of things that Cal is talking about, so that, hopefully, the machines that we're interacting with can take that into account in the ways in which they're working with us or alongside us or whatever it might be, so that the, the human-computer interaction becomes uh, much more ef- effective. The flip side of effective computing, Uh, is, uh, it's also part of the field, is how do you get robots to uh, express, how do you make a mechanical device, let me not anthropomorphize, make a mechanical device that gives off signals which talks about its intent, and that gives you an idea of what its uh, current uh, analysis of the environment happens to be. For example, a friend of mine, uh, Rodney Brooks, it was at MIT, he builds a, uh, an industrial robot, it does industrial jobs, but it has this iPad sort of thing mounted on it, and it's got a pair of eyes on the screen. And what's cool about that is that if you're over there working with it, it looks to where it's going to take its next action. Now, it can't see through those, that screen, but it has a, it's very effective for signaling to people around it that that's where its attention is focused and that's where it's going to be doing some action next. So mimicking these kinds of affective qualities both in the machine and our ability to sense them in people uh, really helps us to uh, create a world in which we're harmoniously incorporating uh, robotic technology with, uh, alongside human beings.
1: And leaving the world a little weirder. Weirder, weirder and wilder.
0: Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast for the California Institute of Integral Studies. If you liked what you heard, find us and subscribe on iTunes or listen on our website ciisedu dot slash public programs.